Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Well, it's great to have you here today. Um, it's fantastic. And um, we have a lot of people away today. I guess it's school holidays and a lot of people are still away. But um, it's great that you could be here with us this morning. Uh, I need a volunteer, and it has to be a guy, so this isn't a sexist thing, it's just not going to work if I don't have a guy, so is anyone, Justin, awesome, big round of applause, Justin, (laughs) she's come straight from the gym actually, look at him, he's huge, so uh, Justin, I'm going to get you to play a bit of a game uh, called Would You Rather, have you ever played this game before? Yeah, 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 play at Tuesday meetings. Okay, right, awesome, okay, right, so um... Uh, it's going to come up on the screen, so actually, mate, you might want to stand on this side of me and grab this microphone if you want. So I need you to look up at the screen and uh, tell me what would you rather do in these situations. Uh, here's the first one. So would you rather get fashion advice from Jermaine from Flight of the Concords, or next slide, get fashion advice from Brett from Flight of the Concords? It's a tough decision there. Uh, what would you go with? I'll go with Brett. You go with Brett? Awesome. Okay, uh, next slide. This one's a bit tougher. Would you rather have lunch with a comedy genius <laughs> or have lunch with an elite athlete? This is going to be very tricky for you. Uh, what would you go on this one, Justin? Um, uh, I'll have to go with uh, the comedy genius. Awesome. Okay, we'll see if we can arrange that for you. Uh, next slide. Uh, would you rather hang out with Phil Gould? Uh, that's going to be a tough decision. Or date his daughter. Um, what would you go for there? <laughs> I mean, you're hooked up already, so... <laughs> I'll yeah. go feel good. You're going to go? Okay, right. Okay. Uh, next one. Would you rather be single your whole life? Um, that's not me, by the way, just in case you thought it was. And, um, or end up in this family here, right? <laughs> this is a bit of a family portrait. I'll go single. Okay, awesome. <laughs> good work. Um... Now, would you rather, don't go ahead just yet, would you rather uh, be hooked up to a machine that makes you think that your life really counts, right? So your life doesn't count, but the machine that you're hooked up with uh, tells you that your life somehow counts. Or, next slide, would you rather actually make a difference with the one life that you've got? Uh, Definitely go make a difference. Okay, make a difference. Awesome. Give Justin a big round of applause. Thank you very much for that. Uh, A guy called... Tell Ben Shahar, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, he said this. He said, given the choice between a machine-generated feeling that we had brought about world peace or a less powerful feeling derived from actually helping one person, we would most likely choose the latter. It is as if we have an internal mechanism that demands more than just the present sensation that we feel. We need the cause of our emotions to be meaningful. We want to know that our actions have an actual effect in the world, not just that we feel that they do. And what he's saying is this. There is something in us and there's something in you and there's something in me, there's something in all of us that longs for purpose. It doesn't really matter what your background is. It doesn't really matter what you believe about life or God or morality or anything. There's something in all of us that longs for purpose. Um, During World War II... Uh, there, was a, there was a Nazi camp in Hungary and they basically had organised for all the prisoners of this camp to work in a factory. Uh, but during the war, the factory got bombed and destroyed so they didn't have anything to do with the prisoners of war and they wanted to keep them busy, they wanted to keep them occupied, they didn't just want them sitting around all day. So they said to the prisoners of war, you need to take all the rubble 
that's left over from the bombing of the factory and we need you to move it from that location there over to that field over there. You've got 24 hours, go do it. So they worked their butt off. They worked really hard. They lifted everything. They, they moved it. They were totally exhausted by the end of the day. The next day, they woke up and they were told, now you have to move all the rubble from that field back to its original location. And this went on day after day, week after week. And they just, get them, they just kept them occupied. They just got them moving. And as you can imagine, people began to think this is just meaningless. This is useless. And of course, they're prisoners. Of course, they knew they weren't going to necessarily be treated well. They're prisoners of war. But it began to drive them insane. And there are stories where people would deliberately provoke the guards, hoping that they would get shot because they would rather die than live with the meaningless that they had entered into. Uh, they've done another famous survey where they've asked elderly people, if you could live your life again, how would you do it differently? If you could kind of rework your life, what would you do differently next time? And when they asked the elderly people what they said, the three most common responses, number one was this, I would risk more. I would take way more risks. I was too safe. I was too comfortable. I was too safe. I would risk more. The second one is I would reflect more. I would take the opportunity to appreciate the good things in life and, and, and be grateful for things. But the third thing they said is I would live for things that would go on after I die. I would try to invest my life in those things that would outlive me. I would try to make a difference. I would want my life to have counted for something, that I just wasn't a dot in the, in the, in the, the line of history, but somehow my dot made a difference. And what we want to look at today is, does God have a purpose for our life? And this is a difficult question to, to answer. And I guess I'm, I'm assuming today that if you're not really a Christian, you're not someone who necessarily would typically go to church, or maybe you are someone who goes to church, but you're still trying to figure this whole thing out. I'm assuming that you're kind of okay with me asking the question, you know, does God have a purpose for my life? And you might be still at the stage where you're saying, look, I'm not even sure that there is a God, and that's completely okay. We'd love for you to keep coming along or asking questions. But for those of us who, who maybe do believe there is a God, we want to ask the question, is there a purpose that he has for us? And to do this today, I want to keep this really practical. I'm, I'm, I'm someone who loves thinking about stuff and thinking about life, but I wanted to make today really practical. And there's lots of things we could talk about, but I think there's two steps that are worth considering. The first one is this. Uh, next slide. I think the first step is we've got to figure out what we've been designed to do. We've got to figure out how we've been created, how we've been shaped, what we've been put on this planet to do. And again, if you're not really a Christian or you don't really believe there's a God, that doesn't really make sense. But if there is a God and He created anything, you would assume that He would have some kind of purpose for the things that He creates. In the same way, if you and I build something or create something or design something, we usually have a purpose for it. I think it's a safe assumption to say that we would assume that God would have a purpose for those things or those people whom he creates. And the second thing is, our next slide, we need to align that with God, what God wants to do in the world. We need to align that with what God wants to do in the world. Now, um, this is a bit of a mass nerdy thing called a Venn diagram. Has anyone heard of the term Venn diagram before? I'm actually a mass teacher in a former life. I still dabble a little bit. In a Venn diagram, what you're trying to do is get in the overlap. 
You're trying to figure out how do I live my life in the overlap between what I've been designed to do and what God is trying to do in the world. If I just do what I've been designed to do and I become successful, but I don't align that with what God wants to do, I will experience emptiness. Uh, Next slide. And you might be successful, you might be very, very popular, you might be very um, financially secure, but if you don't align that with something greater than yourself, you'll experience meaninglessness and emptiness. Alternatively, if you just set out to do that which you think God wants you to do, if you set out to do those things that you think will make your life count, but you don't align that with what you've been designed to do, you'll experience failure. You'll go out and try to do all these great things for the world and for others and for God, but because you're not aligning it with who you've been designed to be, you'll be frustrated and disappointed and you'll experience failure. But ideally, the goal is to align what we've been designed to do with what God wants to do in the world, and the hope is that we would experience success and joy and fulfillment in that process. So let's have a look at the first one, what we've been designed to do. Uh, Psalm 139, 13 to 16 says this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are powerful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now again, according to the Bible, you are not an accident. You are not an accident. Your parents may never have intended to have you, but God intended to have you. There is not one person, some of you are laughing about that, that may be way too close to the truth for some of you, but... The fact is that there is not one person who has ever walked the face of the earth that God did not intend to be here. Now again, you can sit there and go, well, I'm not even sure if there's a God. I'm not even sure how this whole thing works. And I get that. But if God is real, if the God of the Bible is true, then we need to take it for his word that we are not an accident, that he designed us for a purpose, that God ordained the the days of your life before the beginning of time, before you were even formed, that he looked in the future and said, you have been created for a purpose. You are not just some random chaos. You are not just an accident. You're not just some worthless being. You're not just some reject who couldn't find a job or some rejected person who couldn't do this or someone who's insecure or whatever. You are valuable to the God of the universe because he created you and he loves you and he puts you here for a purpose. Rick Warren says this, Some animals run. Some hop, some swim, some burrow, and some fly. Each animal has a particular role to play based on the way they were shaped. The same is true with humans. Each of us was uniquely designed to do certain things. You are unique, wonderfully complex, a composite of many different factors. When your gifts don't meet the role you play in life, you feel like a square peg in a round hole. This is frustrating, both to you and to others. Not only does it produce limited results, is also an enormous waste of your talents, time, and energy. Um, recently, if, um, if you follow the business um, or the, the, the New York Times bestseller list and you look at the, 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 the business books that have come out in the last 10 years, there's an organisation called Gallup in America that does lots of research. 
And they spent about, I think it's about 30 years researching literally hundreds of thousands of organisations and millions of employees. And they just have a truckload of data. And after you know, 30 years of research and millions of employees and looking at managers and how the best way to manage and all sorts of different things, lots of different books have, have sprung out of that. One of the books is a book called First Break All the Rules and they talked about the 12 key things that all managers need to do if they want to raise up effective employees. Another book was How Full Is Your Bucket? which is all about um, how uh, encouragement and, 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 and praising people actually has such a huge impact, not just in the workplace, but in life itself. But there was another book called Discover Your Strengths, or there's a sequel to that book called Finder 2.0. And this is nearly always in the top 10 for business books on Amazon.com. You can always check it out. And what they found was that if you want to be successful in life, You've got to play to your strengths. If you want to be successful in life, you've got to play to your strengths. In fact, what they said is this. If you were to consider the different aspects of your life, I'm going to become a math teacher now, and I was to consider some of the different things that, that you're involved in. So when it comes to maybe artistic talent, I might be a one out of ten. When it comes to music, I'm probably a zero out of ten, so we won't even put that on there, right? When it comes to... Um, um, uh, management or it comes to all the different things in life that you can do, what you find is that some things are, you're more naturally good at than others. And, um, you know, for me, for instance, I am not naturally good at fashion. I know this. And you might be sitting there going, you're not the worst dressed person here and you might actually be sitting next to the worst dressed person here and that's okay, you don't need to point that out or whatever. I'm not the worst dressed, I'll never be the best dressed, but I'm not the worst dressed because I know I'm a zero out of ten. And when you're a zero, you don't even know who the eights and nines are. I don't even know who is good at fashion here because I'm so oblivious to what fashion looks like. I have a rule, never go shopping alone. That's my little safety net. And I trust people, and hopefully, I'm not the worst dressed person in the room. I'll never be the best, but you know, they can kind of help me. But if I was to spend time learning about fashion, and you were to educate me, I might go from a zero to a two out of ten. I might go from a zero to a three out of ten. But I'm never going to be an eight or a nine out of ten. It just doesn't happen. Generally speaking, people don't go from a zero to a nine. It's just not what happens. And what Gallup found, the Gallup organisation found, is that if you want to be really successful, if you want to be really effective, if you want to make a difference, you need to find the one or two or three things that you can naturally do better than most people you know. So what are the one or two or three things that you might naturally be a seven at? You're a seven out of ten, or you're an eight out of ten. And then they said, what you've got to do is you're going to find the thing, maybe I'm a six here, you're going to find a way to bump this six up to an eight, or bump this eight up to a ten, or bump this seven up to a nine. And what you've got to try to do is find a way to develop your strengths. So often in life we're told to develop our weaknesses, and, and I'm a school teacher so I can say this, schools are very guilty of this. You do really, really bad in one subject, you're really good in the other subject, where do we get told you have to put your time? Typically, schools will say, oh, you know, you didn't do very well here. You failed history. You better put more time and energy into history, even though you're smashing science. Don't worry about that. Actually, the opposite is true. What they said was, 
If you're getting like 20% for history and you can't write an essay and you're in year 11 and this is, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's basically obvious the writing's on the wall, don't worry about history. Become a scientist. Orchestrate your life so that 90% of your time is operating outside of your strengths. So what they said was, figure out what you're naturally good at, bump those things up from a 7 to a 9, from an 8 to a 10, from a 6 to an 8, and then... Find a way to orchestrate your life so that you rarely have to operate outside of your strengths. And basically, this is what they found works. Interestingly, this is very similar to what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about once a person becomes a Christian, they get a spiritual gift and they become part of the body of believers and that each of us has a different role to play. I am never going to be a great counsellor. I've done a counselling subject at Bible College, which I think is just enough to make me dangerous, to be perfectly honest. Um, I care about people a lot. Sometimes, you know, I care so much that I get too you know, worried about them. Sometimes I know I'm going to care so much, so I have to kind of hold back and I, can't, I find it really hard. But I'm not good at counselling. I'm a problem solver. I'm a math teacher. I want to solve people's problems for them rather than help them work through their issues on their, their own. And I've realized that I can maybe be a three or a five out of ten, but I'm never going to be in my sweet spot when I operate as a counselor. And part of life is working out what are your weaknesses, trying to orchestrate your life in such a way so you don't operate from weakness, but operate from strength. And realize God has given you your weaknesses as a gift so that you don't get involved. I love music. I've got like a man crush on Ed Sheeran. I don't know if anyone else listens to Ed Sheeran. I've got like, I listen to music all the time. I'm up with all the latest music. I can tell you that, that um, the, the, I can't remember her name actually, the Australian rapper, female rapper is number one in America and number two in America at the moment. I can tell you all about the latest charge. I love music, but I'm completely tone deaf. Sometimes when people um, sing in the morning, I'll go up after them and say, hey, I thought t- this morning was great. And one of my friends was a great singer, and he said to me, Mark, you're tone deaf. When you tell me that I'm great, it's almost like an insult, not a compliment, right? I'm so tone deaf. And I think that God made me tone deaf because he knew that I love music so much, I would want to wrap myself up in it. So to keep me out of that world, he made me tone deaf so I can appreciate it, but not get involved. And the fact is that many of us have weaknesses, but we also have strengths. And if we want to be effective, we want to be successful, we have to find out what are those things we're naturally good at and play to our strengths. The second thing is this. We've got to align it, our strengths with God, what God wants to do in the world. Um, an author by the name of Jenny Allen recently wrote a book called Anything. It'll come up on the screen in a second. Uh, the book was called Anything. And uh, the prayer that unlocked my God and my soul. In it, she describes how her and her husband had grown tired of going through the motions and they wanted to make their life count. Uh, So I've just asked Laura to read a little bit about what Jenny Allen wrote in that book. I felt neutral about God. When you grow up with the stories and songs and lessons, you accept everything. You aren't trying to explain God if you grew up hearing about him since birth, like Santa Claus. I knew what I thought I needed to know. I didn't feel much for the most part when watching people talk about him. I didn't remember it feeling very real. In fact, I remember God feeling a little plastic. I was a good girl from a good family and a good church and a good school. 
I made good grades and had good friends and made good decisions and I even had a good dog. I was a good Christian. I mean, I should have been. I'd heard the stories and songs and lessons 7,338 times. It's what I knew. But God? I don't remember God, the real God, being there. I started craving something that had never seemed acceptable to me until that day, a reckless faith, a faith where I knew God was real because I needed him, a faith where I lived surrendered, obedient, a faith where I sacrificed something, comfort or safety or practicality, something. But my heart raced faster when I thought of it and something about it resonated. God, we will do anything, anything. That night, after we prayed anything, as I was falling asleep, I looked into God's eyes and asked him, what do you want me to do while I'm here? We weren't as scared as we should have been. We were just so tired of normal. We loved our simple, sane life, but now we wanted to find the kind of life you only find if you lose normal, simple and sane. God was real and heaven was coming and I wanted to hold every moment on earth in light of that moment when I would meet God face to face. No more pro and con lists, no more scrapbooks of my future, no more seemingly logical decisions about what made sense for a family. Wild was the new expectation for our lives because we had given them entirely to a wild God. Praying anything was just the beginning for us. It was the beginning of something reckless and unknown. I knew God would change our circumstances. I knew he would begin to divide us up and pour us out wherever he wanted. But I did not realise the impact it would immediately have on my soul. So much of my life and mind had spent significant time in places such as fear and discontentment and shame. As we lay in bed letting go of pieces of our lives that had seemed to be so important, sins and strongholds began to fall off of us. God was changing me. Everything was changing. Before, surrendering to God had felt like bondage rather than freedom. When I prayed anything, what I feared would bind me, set me free. It stung like death, and it still feels like death, but that feeling is the key turning in the lock. On the other side of the pain is freedom, peace, joy, hope, the loss of control, and it is how I was made to live. God, we will do anything, anything. Thank you. Actually, give Laura a big round of applause. Thank you for doing that. I'm actually also a really bad reader. I was in a remedial group for school and my most feared part of any type of speaking is having to read. So thank you, Laura, for doing that. I actually really appreciate it. So um, That's pretty frightening, hey? To be able to say to God, hey, God, I'll do anything. What do you want for my life? And it's actually terrifying. And to be perfectly honest, it's crazy. Like it's the kind of craziness that even church people look at and go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's too radical. That's too dangerous. That's not being very responsible. And every now and again, you'll meet people in church or you'll meet people who are Christians and they've kind of prayed the prayer like that. And it's not rare to find these, it's pretty rare to find these people, to be honest. Because a lot of people, even Christians that you know, are very safe and secure. We live a very comfortable life. And, and really, what the invitation is, is that the creator of the world says, I've created you for a purpose. He's created me for a purpose. And if we could come before him and we could align ourselves with what he wants to do and we just simply come before him and say, God, I'll do anything. 
You write the script for my life. I'm tired of writing, you know, as, as she said in that, in that reading, you know, the, the, the pros and cons list. I'm, trying to, I'm tired of weighing everything up. Is this safe? Is this responsible? Is this secure? God, if you are the creator of the universe and you created me for a purpose, if before the beginning of time you had planned my days, if you are loving and kind, if you love me more than I even love myself, then maybe I could just trust you with my life. Maybe I could do that. And really that's the invitation. Uh, Romans 12.1, a passage from the Bible says this. This is Paul writing to the church at Rome. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies or your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And again, that's frightening. To actually say to God, I'm going to offer my life to you. I'm going to put my life in your hands. Do with it what you want. The answer is yes. Whatever the question, God, the answer is yes. I, I just want to give my life to you. But the key to this passage is actually the very beginning. He says what? Therefore. See, we're coming in on a massive dialogue that Paul, or monologue that Paul's been writing to the church at Rome. And this is the 12th chapter of a 16-chapter book. And it's by the 12th chapter... He gets to the therefore. The first 11 chapters, he describes how much God loves us. He describes how messed up we are and how Jesus came into the world to die on a cross to pay for our sins. He talks about the fact that God doesn't just leave us as we are, but he gives us the Holy Spirit who comes into our lives. He talks about the fact that God adopts us as sons and daughters of God, that he, he takes us into his family, that he promises to provide for us and care for us. He talks about the fact that God works everything for our good, that he has a purpose for our life and even the messed up things that happen in this world, God leverages them for good and not for harm and not for evil. He has just spent 11 chapters trying to convince the church at Rome, God is good. God is loving. You can trust him. You can put your faith in him. He loves you so much. And therefore, in view of this mercy, in view of God's great mercy, His grace, His kindness, His love, His attentiveness, His power, the fact that He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, in view of all of this, could you possibly consider throwing your life into the hands of God and praying that prayer? God, I don't know you the purpose of my life, but I'll do anything. I'll align my life with what you want me to do so that's it we figure out who God created us to be and we align it with what God wants to do now the danger with a message like this is that we assume that living a life of purpose means that we will one day get to heaven isn't that what you're told you know the world tells us all the time that if you're good then one day you'll get to go to heaven. If you love people well, you'll get to go to heaven. If you do enough good things, you'll get to go to heaven. And if you come to church for a while, you'll, you'll hear that that's wrong. No, 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 we, we don't get to go to heaven by being good. We don't get to go to heaven by trying really hard. We don't get to go to heaven by living a purposeful life. They'll say something different. They'll say, you've got to live for Jesus. 
You've got to promise to serve him all the days of your life. You've got you to be very consistent in the way that you always do everything for him. And really, it's the same thing. It's just a Christianized version of what they're trying to say. But really, living a life of purpose doesn't get you to heaven. In fact, the interesting thing is, nothing you and I do gets us to heaven. Has anyone ever been involved in having a performance review in their workplace before? So a few of you, I've never had one. I'm terrified of ever having one. Um, They sound terrifying to me. But can you imagine if someone, um, or if all of us, were given a performance review at the end of our life, and the God of the universe is the one giving the performance review? And he's like, look, if you want to get into heaven, then you just basically have to get A plus, A plus, A plus, A plus, A plus, all along the performance review. You have to get basically straight A's. You have to get every category, 10 out of 10, 100%. And if you can do that, you get to go to heaven. Now, I'm in a lot of trouble. You're in a lot of trouble, all of us here, because all of us have failed to live the life that God wants us to live. All of us have failed to live that life of purpose. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into the world and he lived the perfect life. He performed perfectly. And what if becoming a Christian is not about what you do for God? What if it is actually about what God does for you? What if it's not about the purpose that you live for God, but what if it's about the purpose that Jesus had in coming to earth? Imagine that you and Jesus were to sit down and both of you were given a performance review. And here's my performance review. And it's basically got straight E's and I'm getting 1 out of 10 and 2 out of 10 and 0 out of 10 across the board. I haven't loved people the way I should. I haven't forgiven those who hurt me the way I could have. I haven't always spoken highly of people in every possible situation. There's been unresolved anger in my heart or there's been some bitterness there and I haven't dealt with with guilt the way I should have. And and basically, the more my life gets put under the microscope, the more I realise my performance review is not going to go very well. But Jesus has a performance review as well. And he loved those who are hard to love. He served those that no one else cared about. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He always spoke highly of those who needed to be spoken highly of. He was just perfect in every possible way. And what if becoming a Christian is not about performance, but actually it's about letting Jesus be our performance? And what if what happens is, that Jesus comes along and he says, Mark, I will take your performance review and I will write my name on your performance review. And Jesus says to me, you can have my performance review and you can write your name on my performance review. That would be pretty cool, right? I'm now pretty confident I'm going to get to heaven because now when God looks at me, he treats me as if I had performed the way that Jesus performed. Every time Jesus loved, God credits that to my account. Every time he serves, God credits that to my account. Every time he cares, he credits that to my account. And the way that a person becomes a Christian is not by living a life of purpose. That's an outflow of becoming a Christian. The way a person becomes a Christian is by letting Jesus fulfill his purpose. And his purpose was to come and pay for all my sin. And to basically write his name on my performance review. 
so that his righteousness is credited into my account. And today what I want to do, and I don't know necessarily more than half of you really, but I just want to give you an opportunity to do that. Some of you have been feeling guilt and shame and you're incredibly fearful of God. And I just want to say Jesus has come today to write his name on your performance review. And I want to give you an opportunity to let him do that today. So can we just have every single person with their heads bowed and their eyes closed? And if you're saying today, hey, listen, God, I don't understand this whole thing. I'm kind of checking it all out. Or I've been here for ages and I've maybe never understood it. But I need you, Jesus, to write your name on my performance review. If that's you today, can you simply put your hand up right now and say, God, that's me. I want you to save me. I need to be forgiven of all my guilt and shame. Just put your hand up right now and say, that's me. That's great. Just keep putting your hand up. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Jesus. In this moment, we declare, God, that we have not performed, that we have not lived the life of purpose you want us to live, that we are sinful and broken and messed up. And we're not just good people who occasionally do the wrong thing. We are sinful people who rebel against you and and really, at the end of the day, live for ourselves. Right now, Jesus, we trust in your finished work on the cross on our behalf. We ask that you write your name on our performance review. You credit your righteousness into our account. Give us the Holy Spirit to come into our life and transform us, to make us new people, to begin to transform us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.